This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we look at the many different theories and explanations of atonement that have arisen throughout the centuries. A very critical conversation for theology in our day and how we interact with the story. Now, Marty, we have uh, quite a few books that we're going to be referencing this episode, so I don't know if you want to just like throw them all out there at the beginning, and then we'll try to mention them. Uh, we'll link them to specific things as we go along, but just get them all out there. Yeah, we got a longer list than usual here, uh, because we're going to talk about atonement today, and there's going to be a lot of questions, and I'm going to get a million emails wanting pe- people wanting to know, like, what can I read? So I'm going to tell you all the things you can read. Um uh, at least just to get you started at least. And, and, and then you don't have to write me that email. It'll save us all a bunch of time. That'd be wonderful. So there's a bunch of books here. We're going to put on here. Uh, one of those is uh, a better atonement by Tony Jones. We'll end up referencing that it was an excellent little ebook, which I kind of think led to the next book that we'll recommend also by Tony Jones. Did God kill Jesus is another, it doesn't mean I agree with everything you're going to read in these books as always disclaimers. Think critically. I give us these things to help us think, to engage content. Doesn't mean that I agree with every sentence you're going to read in all these books, but uh, A Better Atonement and Did God Kill Jesus by Tony Jones. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia will be referenced, uh, particularly The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, and C.S. Lewis. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Death of the Warrior God by Gregory Boyd. Uh, going to reference that book. I like Greg Boyd's work a lot. I don't agree with him on everything, um, but I really like his work and we'll reference some of his work in Death of the Warrior God would be at least one book. He has a few you could look at, but that would be my recommendation. Uh, we're going to talk about Rene Girard and there's a book by Michael Harden. I think it might only be an electronic book. I'm not sure, but it's called The Jesus Driven Life. The Jesus Driven Life by Michael Harden. And then um, just an excellent book. I recently read A Community Called Atonement by Scott McKnight. It's going to be a great overall book for the whole topic. I highly recommend anybody that's interested in reading anything about Atonement, read A Community Called Atonement by Scott McKnight. So jumping back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe real quick, just thinking in super broad terms about books, what kind of book would you say that is? I mean, fiction. It's a fiction yeah. book. All right. I just, just, just wanted to ask yeah. for <laughs> Yeah. Brent knows my feelings <laughs> about fiction. Hey, you know, there's got to be one or two out there's, there's there There's always a few out there. Fiction's great. I love it. I'm glad all you guys are reading fiction. It's fantastic. All right. <laughs> Let's learn things instead. Okay. Uh, so there's one last conversation I want to put on the table before we jettison the book of Hebrews. And it's not going to be a conversation we're going to bump into in fiction. We're going to bump into it in nonfiction. It's this idea of atonement and this idea of, of theology and, and the theology of atonement. For many, the theology of atonement isn't one that bothers them. They aren't even aware that there's a conversation about atonement. As I, I hesitate to even bring it up at all. But then I'm reminded of other folks who have serious questions, and I remember the importance and the need to bring those questions to the table. And I know that years ago, I would have said, years and years ago, I would have said that atonement is at least the one thing that all believers in Jesus understand clearly and believe in, but I have since come to realize how foolish I was and how this is not the case. And quite frankly, I'm glad, Brent Billings. I'm glad because as I've continued to study the Bible and theology, I have found the way we talk about atonement alarming at times, to say the least. I was once uh, recently, a few years ago, in a church service where the teacher was, uh, the preacher was telling a story about how his daughter had recently been harassed by a man at her workplace. Week after week, this person would make her uncomfortable and she would take great measures to avoid him. 
On a family excursion out of town, coincidentally, they ran into this individual at a department store. The preacher explained how he put his daughter, he slid her behind himself and stood in front of her. He's kind of a larger gentleman. And he stood in front of her, shielding her from the individual's view so that when he came around the corner, he didn't see the daughter, but the larger, more intimidating father. The preacher then said, that's what Jesus does for you. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus standing in front of you. My mouth dropped open as I realized that we had just allegorically equated God the Father to a sociopathic predator, and the room nodded in agreement, muttering soft amens and hallelujahs under their breath. That, brothers and sisters, is disturbing theology. But I'm thankful for the conversation because I had very similar questions about my understanding of atonement when I was growing up. Logically speaking, isn't this where evangelical theology has to land? Like, isn't that, isn't what I just explained? Isn't that exactly what good atonement theology says? It was liberating to find the conversation surrounding atonement as much bigger than I was aware of. I bring this up because the book of Hebrews is the book, not Romans. It's the book. Hebrews is in the New Testament that speaks directly to and about atonement. I find it ironic that we go to the book of Romans to explain our evangelical understanding of atonement, a book that doesn't speak to directly to the atonement at all in its content. As we learned with our time in Romans, the book is about justification, not atonement. Especially from a Jewish perspective of the New Testament and its authors, these are two wildly different conversations. Even though the two ideas are directly linked in evangelical theology, not the case in the Judaism of the authors of the Bible. I will give a very quick overview of the different theologies of atonement that have shaped Christianity over the last 2,000 years. I will not, Brent, be trying to resolve the conversation, for this is not what I believe is most helpful. I will simply point out that there is a conversation. I should also say that there are other resources that do what I am about to do much better than I will. There is a short three-chapter book I recommend at the beginning, Tony Jones, A Better Atonement, just three chapters. I think it was three bucks. I think it was a dollar a chapter. Wonderful little three-chapter ebook, A Better Atonement Beyond the Depraved Doctrine of Original Sin. Good, <laughs> wonderful subtitle there. Uh, does a wonderful job explaining the conversation in a way that helps one understand the basics. At any rate, one of the oldest theologies of atonement is the idea of ransom captive, this, is the, uh, this idea is more poetic in its theology than mechanical. It espoused the idea that Satan had held the world captive to sin. He was willing to make a deal with God that if he would give Jesus as a ransom payment, Satan would let God's children go. God agrees, handing over Jesus, who is crucified, but then Jesus rises from the dead, leaving Satan empty-handed. One might recognize the theology as playing a part in which fiction book, Brent? <laughs> The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You got it. If you remember at the end of that, no spoiler alert right now, if you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but Aslan makes a deal with the witch that if he allows her to kill him, she's going to let all the people go free, and then, surprise, Aslan comes back. That's ransom captive. The problem with this theory can be multifaceted on a theological level. To name just a couple, it puts the power in the hands of Satan— which is weird, and makes God out to be a deceiving hustler. Centuries later, this theory had run its course and needed to be replaced. I mean, look back at Jacob, though. Sure. And what's so striking is 
these theories are often driven by the context of their time in history, because this is the oldest view of atonement. And what is the church dealing with right off the bat, Brent? What is rampant all throughout the church? Well, persecution from Rome. Absolutely, just persecution. So ideas like ransom captive make a whole lot of sense when that's the context of your theology. Um, But after that, we no longer are persecuted. We now find ourselves at the handle end of the sword. That's more coming on that in session five. And so that, that led to the idea of Christus Victor. For the next handful of centuries, Christians held the idea that Jesus came to conquer the realm of sin and death. There was the order of death that had reign and influence on this world, and Christ's death and resurrection defeated this order and ushered in the order of life. What's going on in the context of this period of history, Brent? Things like the... The plague. Okay. Or even a little bit later, even more relevant to Christus Victor, when you think of Victor and conquering oh, victorious... The Crusades. The Crusades. Of course this drives our theology, Christus Victor. This theory of atonement has uh, recently made kind of a comeback. The, the theology kind of been renewed, uh, kind of repainted in a in a more modern and maybe more accurate understanding. Theologians like Greg Boyd, I think I recommended uh, Death of the Warrior God. He promotes this idea and an understanding of what might call, we might call a neo-Christus victor. The problem with this theory is that it doesn't have a mechanical explanation for the atonement of personal sin. While it explains the meta-narrative of two kingdoms and the struggle of light and darkness, it doesn't actually explain how my, my personal mistakes, how your Brent Billings personal mistakes are atoned for. It's worth noting that the theories of atonement are largely driven, again, by the historical context of their inception. It will help us understand uh, that idea of the context. It's going to help us understand uh, the, the construction of the atonement theory many of us were raised with, which is properly known as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement, sometimes abbreviated PSA. The idea here is that because of your sin, death is demanded. God loves you too much to let you die, so he sends Jesus into the world to die as your substitute. There's a substitutionary. Penal is legal. That's a word for legal. Penal, legal. Substitutionary. Jesus is your substitute. And that's where your atonement comes from. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Jesus dies as your substitute. And in this way, the penal demand for death is satisfied. And your acceptance of this gift is your ticket to atonement and eternal life. It should be worth noting that this understanding of atonement was explained uh, during the days of the Reformation. In a new world of legal contracts and legal documents, a world that did not exist before that era, theologians like John Calvin were lawyers who took their knowledge of legal matters and applied it to their theology. The problem with this theory, in addition to what it does to our understanding of the Trinity, as referenced all the way at the beginning of our episode today, is that it suggests God is bound by a non-existent court and a rule book that must be superior to himself. The true freedom of God is not maintained. He is forced to do certain things in certain ways. Like because of your sin, death is demanded. But if God just says he wants to forgive your sin, like who shows up to arrest God? Like God has to be free. Theologically, God has to have freedom to do whatever he wants. If God wants to ignore your sin, who shows up and tells God he can't do that? God's not bound to anybody other than himself. Other theories have been at play, and most of us have simply been unaware of those conversations in our circles, Brent. The ri- you, you actually, with your upbringing, might have actually bumped into some of these other ones. The rise of textual criticism uh, 
secularism and liberal theology toward the beginning of the 20th century led to kind of maybe a resurgence of what's known as the moral exemplar theory. Somebody once appropriately pointed out to me they didn't create moral exemplar because even back in 1000 AD, a theologian by the name of Abelard uh, was actually pushing against Anselm and his theology and, and actually created something that essentially is moral exemplar. But it kind of had a resurgence with textual criticism and the liberalism of this last 20th century. It's an idea that said that Jesus's death on the cross was the ultimate example of the self-sacrificial ethic Jesus spent his whole life teaching. These theologians say Jesus's teaching and life demanded that he would lay down his own life on behalf of others in order to take down corrupt systems of religious oppression. For many of us, this theory stops far too short and has a slightly hollow ring to it. Another theory espoused by Tony Jones in those two books I've already mentioned is solidarity theory. This theory is that God took on flesh in the incarnation and walked among us to join humanity in the greatest movement of solidarity we have ever seen. Jesus came to sweat our sweat, taste our food, cry our tears, and bleed our blood, and ultimately die our death, which sounds very much like what we just heard in last week's episode about the book of Hebrews. Yet another theory tries to see atonement through a more Hebraic lens. Obviously, my personal favorite. Scapegoat theory was proposed by the late theologian René Girard. I believe the world of theology will look back 50 years from now and realize the understated impact Girard's theology will have on evangelicalism and Christendom as a whole. Scapegoat theory states that Jesus' death served as the ultimate sacrifice, just as the scapegoat did in the Levitical system. The scapegoat was given as a representation of the forgiveness of God and the removal of your sin. So Jesus was offered at the culmination of the ages, once for all time for the cleansing of your conscience. No longer do we have to offer an annual scapegoat, for this sacrifice of God himself is good for all eternity to accomplish what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. That was one of those themes brought out in the infographic that we didn't really talk about too much last week, but that idea of once for all, once for all, once for all. Absolutely. Yep. And if you wanted a, a good synopsis of just Girardian theology, like the work of Rene Girard, that's where that book by Michael Hardin, The Jesus Driven Life, uh, that we recommended. Uh, you, can, you can find that. Uh, just a great kind of... I think it's 28 chapters or something like that of just going through uh, Gerard's work. So I say all this again with no intent of resolution for a few reasons. First, simply for theological awareness. While such knowledge will frustrate many who like their clean boxes and their clear answers, it will also liberate others to know that the questions they've always had have some validity. Second, because I'm not so sure that there is a right quote-unquote, a right theology of atonement, I'm starting to believe that each theory of atonement has a way of explaining a place of the mystery that is the love of God and the death of Jesus on the cross. The poetry of ransom captive is still moving to this day. I mean, who doesn't love that part of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? The victory of Christus Victor is an annual part of my personal celebration of Resurrection Day and the empty tomb. And I'm not sure I could understand the resurrection without it. I believe Christ's death is an example of what self-sacrificial living looks like, just as the moral exemplar theory explains. I believe the mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus came to stand in solidarity with all humanity. And even though we are living toward the end of the age of penal substitutionary atonement, a theory I believe has run its course and has led to some horribly destructive theology. 
I believe there is some good truth in the theory and the history, and that history will look back on penal substitutionary atonement uh, and its ability to communicate great theology when used correctly. And I can't do it on this episode today, Brent, but you've seen me multiple times draw my fun little diagram. I think everybody's used to the whole chasm diagram. We've seen the chasm where, like, I'm on one side and then God's on the other. And in between is what, Brent, in the chasm? Is death. Is sin. Sin, All my sin separates me from God. And so then we put the cross in there and now there's a bridge where I can cross. I kind of, and that that kind of articulates penal substitutionary atonement in essence. Um, I've kind of toyed with that diagram and kind of made my own to try to reclaim the good that does exist in penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, and, and some will say I've made it unrecognizable, but maybe someday when we're producing video content, I will actually show that diagram in video form. How about that? Third, I believe all these things that I just stated to be true because the book of Hebrews, the book on atonement, seems to portray all of these theories. Hebrews says early in the letter that Christ offered his life as a ransom for many. What theory, Brent? Ransom captive. Ransom captive. It speaks, the book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus triumphing over death and scorning the shame of the cross. What is that? Christus Victor. Christus Victor. It speaks of Jesus serving as our example, showing us how to suffer so that we might be brought to glory. Moral exemplar. Moral exemplar. Speaks of God offering his son for our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. Absolutely. It references multiple times the idea that Christ would join humanity in our suffering, be tempted in every way, and experiencing our humanity so that he could serve as our great high priest. Solidarity. Solidarity. That's right. Finally, the book of Hebrews is consistent with its use of scapegoat theory and the idea over and over again that the sacrifice of Jesus is able to clean our conscience, something that blood of bulls and goats could never do. And again, if you want to read a great book on this, read A Community Called Atonement by Scott McKnight. He talks about all atonement theories like golf clubs in a golf bag. And he says, every theory of atonement has its place, but you need to know when to use which club for and how and why. Like ransom captive has its place, but you don't use it. You don't use a putter to drive off the tee box. And I don't pull out a nine iron when I'm on the green. And part of what we've done is we've taken the nine iron of penal substitutionary atonement and we just have forced people to play golf everywhere with a nine iron all the time. And it's gotten to be so destructive in our theology. You'd have to come up with some creative ways to use the club, I think. That's right. And getting some weird angles on yep. that stuff. And not that it couldn't be done and that God hasn't worked in spite of it, but we, we probably need to just ask some critical questions of our theology. So here's what I want to do to end this, Brent is I want to take uh, my favorite kind of portion of Hebrews that is relevant to atonement, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. And I want to just kind of walk through them, and I'm going to interrupt you as you read, and we're just going to make observations about atonement here, and I'm just going to kind of riff uh, on, and, and see if I can be called a heretic here, but I'm going to riff on on Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Sounds great. All right, here we go. <laughs> now, the main point of what we are saying is this. Good place to start, right? Main point. Okay. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Okay, so he's not Levitical. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, because that would be the Levitical code. But he's of a better priesthood, a super, uh, uh, a priesthood that supersedes that earthly priesthood. He's of a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly priesthood, by the order of Melchizedek. Go ahead. 
The earthly priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Okay, now that quote comes straight out of Jeremiah. And that is, that's a very Jewish conversation. A lot of times people will read this and they'll be like, yeah, the Jews screwed up their covenant. So God gave us all a new covenant in Jesus. And now the old covenant is, and we spent a lot of time in this session kind of undoing that nonsense replacement theology. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here, remember, a Jewish author to a very Jewish audience in a very Jewish context, using a very Jewish prophet, speaking about a very Jewish situation, is they are saying, this covenant that we've been a part of, this Levitical covenant, we screw it up. We do screw it up. We have screwed it up. We will screw it up. And so God is going to continue to do something with his people. He's going to continue to do something with people that sets them free from this old way of thinking that doesn't work. And he's going to do something new. It's a very Jewish, it's not talking about how Judaism's dead and Christianity is now here. It's talking about how God's going to do something very Jewish and very new within this Jewish world. He's going to bring them to a new understanding. God's not giving up on his people. It says right at the top of that quote, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Absolutely. Now the next verse is going to seem, people are going to be like, aha, Marty, see I Told you you had it wrong. Go ahead and read me the next verse here. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Horrible, horrible translation. The idea of obsolete. If you go back to how that word is used, if you go pull it up in a lexicon and just look at how the word is used, the word there, obsolete, simply means old. It doesn't mean obsolete. Obsolete is an arbitrary projection on what old means. The word simply just means it's the old one. By calling the covenant new, he has made the first one old. And what is op- and what is old and outdated will soon disappear. See, I am, nobody can see this, Brent, but I am holding in my hands my iPhone 11, right? Now, in my iPhone 11, would you say, Brent, being a, you're an Apple fan, right? Sure. Right? <laughs> now, in my iPhone 11, would you say that in that phone is contained the technology that was started in iPhone 1. Sure. Yep. 3. Right. 4. All of that. 5. Yes. But if I were holding an iPhone 5, we would say that phone's pretty... Outdated. Outdated and... Old. Old, Reed Dent. Um, Reed Dent <laughs> is still out there using an iPhone 5. Actually, I think it just broke. Months ago, by the time this, by the time this episode is recorded, he will have gotten a brand new phone. Fantastic for him. But yeah, it's that, that phone is now old. It doesn't mean it's obsolete because the technology that was in that iPhone 5 was very relevant to get us where we were going to the iPhone 11. 
But once I have the iPhone 11, why in the world would I go back to the iPhone 5? Does that make sense, Brent? Did I explain that well enough? Yeah. The iPhone 5 is not, in a sense, it's obsolete, but not in the way that we talk about it theologically here. We act like the old covenant is now obsolete. It's now irrelevant. To say that the iPhone 5 is irrelevant to where we're at in iPhone technology is ridiculous. Everything we have today is built on what was built for that. Absolutely. It's just new. It's just now newer. That's a better understanding of what that means. Let's go ahead and keep reading in uh, Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. We cannot discuss these things in detail now. And we've read the 14 chapters of Exodus that do, so we're very thankful that uh, the author decided to cut it short here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Okay, so when this high priest goes in once a year, on which day? What's the day called? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He goes in on Yom Kippur, and he offers blood. That's what the high priest does. The high, one of the main jobs of the high priest is to, once a year, offer atonement for all the people of Israel. Now, that atonement is offered by taking that blood into the mercy seat and then bringing that blood out to the altar, and they're going to put that blood on the scapegoat and send that goat away, right? Okay, so that's just the context here. Let's go ahead and keep reading. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. Read that verse again. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Okay, this phrase is going to show up about five times in Hebrews, all right? The gifts and sacrifices being offered in the Levitical system we're not able to truly clear the conscience, to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Go ahead. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Okay, so in this, Jesus has become the temple, Jesus is the high priest, and now Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus ends up becoming all three in the book of Hebrews. He's the temple, he's the priest, and he's the sacrifice. Go ahead. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Okay, I'm going to read that verse myself. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, 
Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This blood of Jesus is able to do something that the animal blood can't do. That Levitical system could not truly cleanse our conscience, but the death of Jesus truly can. It can cleanse our conscience. Go ahead, Brent. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Oh, he died as a... A ransom. Oh, some ransom captive thrown in there. Apparently, Hebrews is not a respecter of all of our numerous schools of theology. Apparently free to grab and take as he or she so chooses. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both of the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, that's not a legal statement like we want to make it out to be. In the context of what he's saying there, it's that you didn't have a system you didn't have a Levitical system without the shedding of blood. It's not a legal statement that you can't have blood, you can't have forgiveness without the shedding of blood. That's not what's being said there. What's being said there is when Moses gave us a system, he sprinkled everything with blood. They could not have forgiveness without blood. Their system of forgiveness was built on the shedding of blood, right? So Jesus has to come into this world and teach us a new way, a better way, an iPhone 11 way. This episode's going to be outdated so fast. <laughs> but he's going he's gonna to give them a new way of understanding, and he's going to use his own blood to do it. And only this blood, for the first time in all of human history, will be able to cleanse our conscience. Go ahead, Brent. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Okay, what did they just say? They said in the old Levitical system... They have to offer these, this same day of atonement sacrifice has to happen how often, Brent? Every year. Every single year, without fail. For Re this reason, Repeated can... endlessly, year after year. Exactly. Repeated endlessly. Go ahead and keep reading that next verse. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Okay, that's the problem with this old 
system. The old system keeps you in bondage, the author of Hebrews says. That old temple, that temple that was just destroyed, actually kept us in bondage. Because as soon as the scapegoat left and we had a party, we all knew that 364, well, they worked off a lunar calendar, but you get the idea. A whole year later, we're going to be right back here doing this all over again. It's an endless system. And if it wouldn't have been endless, they would have been able to stop it. But they couldn't stop it because the system had to keep going. Go ahead. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that right before you started reading there, Brent, I forgot to point out, notice that phrase, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and listen, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. What is that, Brent? A reference to what? Uh, A cleansing of conscience. A cleansing of conscience. But those sacrifices did the opposite. Instead of cleansing our conscience, they actually reminded us of our sins. For it's impossible for this system of blood, uh, of bulls and goats to work. Go ahead. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Okay, so how about this idea? Who is it that told them to offer sacrifices, Brent? Uh, I feel like this is a trick question. It's not. God told them. God told them to offer sacrifices. And yet, in the Psalms, God says, uh, the, the psalmist says, you don't want the sacrifices. In one of the Psalms, God says, I don't need the sacrifices. In the prophets... They say numerous times, you're not pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. So apparently God doesn't need the sacrifice, and God doesn't want the sacrifice. It just said that. God doesn't need the sacrifice, and God doesn't want the sacrifice. And yet God was the one who told them to do the sacrifice, which means the sacrifice isn't even for God. It's not for a legal satisfaction. There isn't something that has to be done. Why is the sacrifice given, Brent? To cleanse our consciences. And it's given to who? Is it given to God? The sacrifice is, I mean, the sacrifice is sacrificed to God, but the sacrifice wasn't given as something that God needs. The sacrifice is given for something that... That we need. You need. You're the one that needs the sacrifice. God doesn't need it. God's totally fine. God could just forgive your sin, but the problem is, is you would still have a what? A guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. And so God gives a sacrificial system in an effort to help us deal with our consciences. And yet, as we evolved over the centuries, we discovered that the system that God gave us actually needed to have a new update. Because this new update was going to help us do something that the old system still wasn't able to do, but Jesus could once and for all time. Go ahead, Brent. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Notice that statement. Day after day. What's that? It's that endless thing that we were talking about. Day after day, the priest stands. Day after day, the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Go ahead. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. This priest, who is that? 
Jesus. Jesus. The great high priest. Yes. He sat down at the right hand of God. Oh, he sat down. See, the other priest has to stand day after day. The priest stands. Day after day, every priest stands and performs. But when this priest offered once for all time a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's the back end of that inclusio. Are you telling me I shouldn't be using a standing desk? Ah, well, we (laughs) we have work to do. Okay. His work was done. Go ahead. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's kind of a weird statement. Yeah. Made, past tense, perfect. Yep. Those who are being, not yet complete, holy. Right. And notice the Hellenistics. I've always said the Bible doesn't talk about perfection. Okay, well, the one example of this and the one exception to this is going to be Hellenistic thought because Hellenistic thought is, you've already told us, Greek, Greek, Western, Greek has this platonic idea of perfection. And so the author here is saying this sacrifice of Jesus has made perfect, appropriate translation, made perfect people that are being made holy. And what is the idea of holy? Being set apart. Set apart. So the sacrifice of Jesus has made perfect people who are being set apart. And I love that you pointed that out. Great work. Go ahead and keep reading. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these things have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Where these things have been forgiven... Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And then you read that that next portion before. But I just actually, go, let's, let's go ahead. I, you want to break, Brent? Do you want me to read? Go ahead. All right. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Listen, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a, guess what, Brent? Guilty conscience. Guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. What is the day referring to here? And the day here is referring to this eschatological idea in Jewish thought. If you remember our whole two-part, three-part eschatology, right? there is a day. And for the two-part, it's right in the middle. And for the three-part, it comes later. But there is a day of reckoning where God is going to make all things right. It's a day of restoration. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of the evil of the world, the dark age being kicked out, and the age to come ruling forever. There was another reference that kind of made me think of that earlier. Uh, it was in chapter 9, 26. Um, Christ would have suffered many times, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to yes. do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And I think that's the three-part eschatology. The culmination of the ages is where the kingdom of God arrives. The day comes later. The culmination of the ages is where everything, the kingdom of God shows up. And that's the difference between two-part and three-part eschatology that we talked about in session three. So absolutely. So there you go. There's just kind of a little bit of riffing on atonement. Uh, the big idea in Hebrews is a guilty conscience. I know that makes all of us that have been raised with penal substitutionary atonement very uncomfortable. Everybody ends up leaving this conversation somehow believing that Marty I hear this all the time. So Marty thinks that Jesus didn't have to die. 
That is not accurate at all. Jesus absolutely had to die, but not because he had to satisfy a legal code, not because there was a law that demanded that Jesus had to die. Jesus has to die because it's the only way that we find true liberation, true freedom, a true clean conscience, because that's what God wants to set us free for. God, from the very beginning, we've said the whole thing is about trusting what, Brent? The story. Trusting the story, trusting that God loves us, trusting that there's enough, trusting that creation is good. What is it that keeps us from doing that except for a a tarnished conscience? That's what keeps us. It's that fear and that insecurity. It's what Cain experienced. I mean, we're going all the way back to session one here. But atonement should be about restoring whatever was disrupted at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And and Jesus is the only way to get there. Truly, truly, Jesus, in our theology, Jesus is how you get there. So does Jesus have to die? Yes. He just doesn't have to die necessarily for all of the reasons that we were handed in systematic theology where we had taken justification, linked it up with belief and faith, and then substitutionary death. Because of that, I get salvation. We we made it all work mechanically in this beautiful legal system. Like, trust me, John Calvin, Martin Luther, these reformers were brilliant thinkers and unbelievable theologians. And there's centuries upon centuries of work that is being built upon this thing. But we've created something that has strayed, in my opinion, far away from the actual theology of the New Testament, which is much more simple much less mechanical. And the, and the message is this, God loves you. And you have, a, you have a marred conscience. And God offered Jesus so that your conscience could be cleansed. And whether you talk about that as a ransom captive, whether you talk about that as a conquering, victorious hero, whether you talk about that as a, an example for us to follow, whether you see God, Jesus, joining us in our humanity, whether you see Jesus as a substitute, taking on your debt, taking on your sin, it's a fine way to see it. But sometimes we get lost in the mechanics of the theology, and we've gotten it all twisted and torn out of shape. Well, and to bring it back to the the story that you heard uh, a few years ago, the the idea of the sociopath angry oh, god. Yes, that that very common refrain you hear: "Sinners at the hand of the angry god." Yes, and that's just not like that's not the god that we see. It, it's not even it's not even good orthodoxy because it's not good Trinity, because it makes all the members of the Trinity different people. God the Father is like angry. The Holy Spirit is the helper and Jesus is the nice guy. And Jesus somehow convinces the Father not to hurt us. But if there wasn't Jesus, the Father would totally destroy us. And that is what what neo-reformers believe even today. Like if you're if you listen to John Piper and his theology, that's exactly very blatantly, very clearly what they believe. Uh, neo-reformers very much hold to that understanding. God is angry, and Jesus deflects that anger if you put your faith in his substitutionary death on the cross. Um, and John Piper's brilliant. He's a brilliant guy. We have been tracking along with a different school of theology that doesn't fit together with that line of thought. We have been tracking with N.T. Wright and kingdom theology, which right. is much more Jewish. Right back at the beginning, Genesis 1, Genesis the fundamental 1. nature of who God created us to be is good. Yes, absolutely. Doesn't work well with a new neo-Calvinism. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean you should bag it. This means all of our Protestant boxes are limited, a little bit broken, and need some duct tape. So are we going to put some prerequisites on uh, emails? You have to read all of the books we recommended before you can email us about this topic. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm a fan of prerequisites, but I'm also not a fan of emails when information is also sitting in front of you. So do with that what you will. 
hopefully what we've done here is <laughs> is open up because like until a few years ago i didn't know i mean i didn't even have a name for it i didn't know psa was a thing right but it was the certainly the the uh angle that i operated from right and so hopefully this this opens the world up a little bit more and you can explore and and find usefulness out of right. all the theories yes and and if you've been if you're at all a student of theology you have struggled with our podcast because of that tension you have struggled with Genesis and session one, and maybe you haven't struggled with it. Like maybe you've settled it in your minds, but the one thing that is not clicking together is this understanding of penal substitutionary atonement and the theology that we're espousing from a Jewish perspective because they don't work together. And, and if that starts to, if you find yourself in a corner, kind of backed into a corner where you don't feel like those two things are working, it's because they, they don't. They don't go together. And if you keep trying to mash them together, it, stuff's just going to break. Um, so wrestle with that. Think about that. And I'm not saying reject it. Please don't hear me say reject PSA. Just realize that penal substitutionary atonement is really just a one little portion of history. Um, it's a development of theology. We've been on a journey. And there are ways to think critically. Just think critically and enjoy. I think no matter what camp you're, you're coming from, you're going to agree that God's ways are uh, different. And so to be able to, to sum up everything that God is doing in the world in a, in a single human theory is just not going to work. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you're not going to encapsulate the mystery. In scapegoat, you're not going to do it in penal substitutionary atonement. Ransom captive, Christmas, they all are, kind of like Scott McKnight says, just one golf club. And I have to know when to use each club for which purpose. Absolutely. That'd be a great video. Yeah, go out on the golf course and yeah. kind of make you uh, use the wrong club for everything. Oh man, it's great! <laughs> All right, well, if you uh, if you do want to get in touch, just go to baymodestepshop dot com. You can find a contact form there. Uh, all sorts of things to to learn about the show. So, thanks for joining us on the Baymod Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.